Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. We are mobilizing Houston to empower families and transform generations. We hope these conversations will give you a greater understanding of the issues facing our community and inspire you to find your place along the river. Hi, everyone. I am Amber Knowles. Welcome back to the Riverside Project podcast. Today, I have Jenny Lord. Jenny is a resolute advocate for fostering family healing through the power of genuine connection. Um, Her journey blends personal experiences with a visionary commitment to transforming the child welfare landscape. In 2008, she established Chosen, a trailblazing nonprofit um, dedicated to nurturing children's recovery from trauma by empowering their families, including adoptive, foster, kinship, um, and biological families who are intertwined with the child welfare system. So we are super glad to have Jenny um, on this podcast today. Jenny, I'm so glad that you're here with us. Um, This has been a conversation in the making for some time. We've been wanting to have this conversation um, for quite some time, and I'm glad that you're here. Hey, Amber. I'm so glad to be here too. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, of course. Um, I want to just start off, of course, by learning a little bit about who you are and what your journey has been like um, as you've started Chosen. Well, that's a broad question. So <laughs> let me, I'll, I'll, I'll tie it to um, my personal and professional experience. Great. Personally, I've been connected to the child welfare space for 28 years. I know I look younger than that. And how are you probably thinking, how is that possible? Uh, But actually, I have a brother who was adopted out of foster care, and he came into our home when I was a freshman in college. He was a toddler, and that experience marked me greatly while we were working Mm -hmm. on his adoption for almost five years. And then professionally, I've been connected to the space for about 15 years since I had the idea to start Chosen. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about Chosen. What um, what do you guys do? Um, where do you work? Um, how do you connect it with and care for families? Yeah, great. So we identified about seven years uh, into Chosen's history, we really identified a gap, I would say, mm-hmm. in the continuum of care, which was really who my question was, who is walking with families long-term to help their children heal? from the traumatic history that they've had and also ensure that they stay together. Right. Um, very passionate about adoption, very passionate about permanency, but I saw a disturbing trend in 2014 timeframe where um, you know kids were being rehomed and that was just heartbreaking for me. So our model of care specifically works to empower caregivers to be an mm-hmm. agent of healing for their kids in their home. And what does that mean? It's really a parent coaching model. Um, it's deeper than just psychological education, trauma-informed yeah. education. It's really practically teaching parents and caregivers how to be that agent of healing um, with evidence-based tools, but also how to apply those techniques and tools in their home that are actually going to build connection with their child. Because mm-hmm. we believe, based on science, science shows us that connection and attachment to a safe, loving caregiver is actually what heals the child's brain. So that's our aim and to ensure that there is permanency for the kids as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, I think that that connection and attachment is sometimes what gets missed in this space. Um, we've often try to find the clinical intervention and um, there's all kinds of modalities that really do a lot of great things for kids. Um, but sometimes the family gets missed in that process. Um, tell me a little bit, you mentioned um, a little bit of your why and why you stepped into 
this space, um, just coming from a more personal background. Can you share a little bit about really what motivated you to um, to start Chosen and to keep kind of pioneering this effort in um, more than one city now, not just Houston? Yes, I think I missed a question. We Our model is telehealth, so we serve families all over the country. We served in 34 uh, states over the last seven years, uh, specifically with that telehealth model. Uh, started in Texas, and we have geographical presence in a number of states as well. Uh, so personally, why am I connected to this? You know, when I my brother was adopted, um, his adoption was final in 1999. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, even though that was during the decade of the brain, that was before the decade of the brain was common knowledge. Um, we didn't really understand the the trauma impact to the brain and how you know, love is not enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people need really the education and tools to help a child heal. And so yeah. um, in my experience with him in college, what I, what I learned was that a system that is designed to care for kids can actually sometimes bring them harm. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't have articulated it then, but as I was really studying the system during our personal family journey, I was recognizing that I was a, a systems thinker. I, I want to mm-hmm. get to the root of issues to solve those issues. So fast forward a number of years, I got out of school, child advocacy path wasn't really open to me, but I had gone into business and had some stepping stone experiences that would ultimately prepare me for what I do today. But in 2008, the church had really, this was you know the first decade of the 2000s, the church had really yeah. woken up to we have an orphan care crisis across the world and we have a foster care crisis in our backyard. And as a believer, we're called to the marginalized, we're called to care for the vulnerable, called to care for orphans. And so there was an awakening in the church, the faith-based movement specifically to care for these kids. And so it was a big topic in my own community. I lived just north of San Antonio and had some friends that had personally adopted and walked through that journey with them. So it was a big topic of communication uh, with within our own community. And People were saying things like, I would adopt if I knew where to start, or I would adopt mm-hmm. if I had the money. Yeah. And so I had an idea of how to help fund adoptions in 2008. So in Chosen's original form, we were helping families with by funding their adoptions. And mm-hmm. we did that for about five years. And um, that was about that time after I'd started the organization, we had funded hundreds of adoptions. We were also doing funding some orphan care projects around the world for kids who would never be adopted. Mm-hmm. And sadly, when I learned about this, the breakdown of the family, really, yeah, that stems from parents not being equipped to handle what stems from trauma. What, so trauma, the way it manifests in the home, as you mm-hmm. well know, Amber, is typically through behaviors. And most children and youth can't really articulate or narrate their own story in a way that is meaningful to an adult right. to help give that understanding. And so when I learned this um, in 2014, I, that really burdened me because I felt like we had a stewardship responsibility. We had advocated for hundreds, if not thousands of children and really right. ignited people to step in and respond to this. But that stewardship question of, okay, well, we've helped people or we give them some money, but then who's with them long-term? Yeah. So that yeah. that was the origin of really what became a missional shift, as I like to say, we shifted our mission uh, in about 2015 to do what we do today. I love how how Chosen has 
you know, the shift that happens when we, when the shift is, um, the need shifts, right? The, the need that you see in mm-hmm. front of you starts to change. Um, it's that idea of starting to look at the problem in front of you and then going a little bit deeper or, um, you know, changing with the way that our culture is changing. And I think back in tw- 2008, there was this big emphasis on adoption. There was a lot of international adoption. There was a lot of private adoption. Um, and then, you know, due to a number of different factors, um, some, countries shutting down, things like that, we really did. You saw kind of the church especially shift into what do we do about the kids who are right here in our backyard? Um, And the families around them was a big culture shift too. Um, I would love to have said that that was always um, the focus, but I'm glad that we've seen that shift happen. And then we see organizations like yours um, that, that move in that direction because of the shift that they see. And so that, that's just really encouraging um, just to see um, you guys just move in that direction and keep meeting needs. Um, well, yeah. um, I'll say one thing about that. Organizationally, we're, we're very entrepreneurial. Uh, and yeah. it's, I, we don't want to duplicate services. But mm-hmm. when there are gaps in our, you know, we call it the continuum of care from prevention way upstream right. to post-adoption services. It's a large continuum. No organization yeah. does everything and no organization could do everything well. I'm not interested in replicating, but when we see and identify those um, opportunities to serve children and families better, and that was yeah. actually the question, that was the pivotal question for me that led to yeah. the shift was, how can we serve families better? Yeah. So, yeah. And what does it mean to actually stabilize them? You know, you can give them a lot of things. We can provide certain services, but what is that missing link? Um, and I think you mentioned it before, a, a big part of that that seemed to be missing for a long time was attachment and connection. Um, can you share just a little bit more specifically on why attachment and connection is kind of the main building block upon which, you know, stability really comes? Um, I think that's a big part of what Chosen is trying to do is build attachment why do you feel like that's been kind of missing? And then how do you guys step in to really, um, to really find, help families find stability there? So the core of what we do is based on attachment theory, which says that a child's brain heals when they have connection, attachment mm-hmm. to a safe, loving caregiver. And because the primary attachment to a loving caregiver has, that's been damaged, right? right. With, with a primary caregiver, the original biological family, even if a child's reunified, there's been damage to that, mm-hmm. what should be that sacred attachment. And so when that happens, a child's brain is then wired more towards that fear response where their little bodies may be living in a stage of fight, flight, or freeze. And that prevents healthy attachment yeah. happening in a new home easily. Um, so while parents, foster parents or adoptive parents, even relatives, when sometimes they're very happy, they're excited that the kids are there and the children aren't necessarily, there may be a honeymoon phase, yeah. right? right? But they're not necessarily going to be as thrilled as being in a new home, a stranger's home as the welcoming parents. Mm-hmm. And so automatically there's a, there's a misalignment of expectations, family generally excited, child not yeah. so happy to be in a stranger's home. And so, nor can a child say, well, I'm, I'm really scared. Or, They're not mm-hmm. going to say, I'm really scared. Or when you do this, it makes me think about. So those, those inner workings of a child's brain that have been damaged, that's at play in the background. And in our experience, and I was a licensed foster parent at one time as well, your pre-training 
isn't really right. going to measure up to what you need in the moment with the child, the actual mm -hmm. child with the specific set of needs in your home. How does that, that pre-training play out? So, um, yeah, yeah I, I think that that's where our focus is. It, and because brain scans even show that with that, with healthy attachment, there can be new synapses, new pathways, neurological pathways mm -hmm. that are created in the brain where that starts to calm down those fear responses in a child's brain and they feel safe and secure and that attachment can start to form. So everything that we're doing with equipping parents is really to that end, Yeah, is, is working toward, they're pursuing their, their, their child's heart, really. Mm -hmm. It's pursuing connection despite what, what is preventing that. Yeah. And it's starting to listen, you know, and to be like mm -hmm. you, you said, it's almost attuning to the child's um, inner, inner soul and her, you know, you mentioned their heart, um, being able to really look and see the need that might be going on beneath whatever behavior is coming out that day or that moment. Um, that's really hard work. And it's something that we just, like you said, early on, you, you mentioned love is not enough. And I think some people would kind of be like, oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> I've, I've always thought that it is, and it's probably written on some coffee mug somewhere that love is enough. Um, but in this space, just, um, you know, just, just trying our best. Um, sometimes we just need tools. We need to, to remember that there are tools out there that can help us to understand those concepts. Um, I know that I've needed them as a parent. I was actually looking up some, for some tools this, just this weekend, um, for some behaviors that were going on in our home. Um, it's not something that just comes naturally. Um, if there were families kind of listening to this that might be in that spot where they're just like, we, we thought that love was enough. We were doing everything we can. We are, we've done everything we can think of, but things just aren't changing. Is there something in particular, like a first step or, or something that you would say, start here? What would, what would you say that that might be? Or what advice would you give them? It's, it's a great question. I would first say you're not alone. <laughs> yes. I so think whether, even if it's your biological children, um, we've all hit those those really rough spots where mm -hmm. you're not sure what else to do. And, and you're not alone in this. The families that come to us, 80% of them are in crisis and mm -hmm. hurting. And they often tell us, I've tried everything. We've tried all these different therapies. They've been in residential. So yeah. you're not alone. Um, you know, I think the first thing is um, one of the, is getting curious. Yeah. Asking questions and really pursuing the connection in the heart of your child. Um, if if somebody is feeling that is a first step that you could do in your home today without talking to anybody is it's just mm -hmm. getting curious. And I know for me, um, I everything that I've learned about parenting in the last ten years from our team has made me a be better parent to my four biological kids. Yeah. And sometimes they come in and you know they start talking about this that or the other and my that happened in their day right the teacher was yeah. mean and and you know they're they're venting about something and a natural response is to just be judgy about it and kind of shut it down mm -hmm. we don't talk about people like that you're, you're supposed to respect authority and really shutting them down versus getting curious about what happened? And like, I can see like you're really hurting, which is you're empathizing then, or I can see you're really frustrated using just some of those basic tools in pursuing connection versus just shutting down whatever the kid yeah. is expressing. Um, that's a good positive first step.
Why do you feel like it is so um, it is so difficult to get to that? It, it seems like such an easy thing to just, it's just listening to our kids. It's getting curious. Those are such, it seems to be easy things to do. Why do you feel like it, it is so difficult? so difficult to even think to do that? Is it just culturally or traditional parenting that we always, you know, the way we grew up was that kind of shutting it down pretty quickly? What, why do you think that it is a little bit more difficult to do those things? I think it's a combination of the things that you said. Um, I'll speak for myself personally. I know that uh, being present takes mm-hmm. practice. Yep. So that's the first Especially thing in, today's in my world. mind it is, yeah, my mind's on something else or I'm trying to get to do something else. Like I'm not even in the posture of getting curious mm-hmm. and really trying to empathize with the child that's in front of me. That's one thing, but definitely traditional yeah. parenting. And what we have found is just traditional parenting doesn't work in this space with kids who have hard histories. Really, I would, I would question does traditional parenting work for any kids. I I know for me, I grew up in a time where you did what you were told because the adult said, mm-hmm. I'm the mom and this is what I said and you don't question me. And and actually I questioned a lot and that didn't go well for me. And so yeah. um <laughs> uh so you know you bring in, we inherit these ways mm-hmm. that we parent based on our own personal background. So I know for myself I brought that type of parenting in with my kids and it mm-hmm. didn't, it never worked with my oldest. Um, and so I, I had to rethink how am I showing up here? Right. And in our space, you know, there tends to be a lot of emphasis on kids' behaviors or the way that kids are acting out. But at the end of the day, the adults were the only ones that are in charge and in control mm-hmm. of our own responses. And so I've had to learn how to parent very differently, again, pursuing my, yeah. my kids' hearts and connecting with them. Yeah, that's a challenge. And it's an everyday 24-7. Um, and then, the, you know, just rupture and repair. We're not going to be perfect in this. Um, we're always going to make mistakes. And sometimes it is going back and building connection through those difficult moments and the places where we've had to kind of repent before our children. Um, yeah, it's a long, long road. Um, tell me a little bit more about what Chosen's up to now. Um, what are the specific kind of programs that you're running? How do you, how are you working with families? Um, you know, you guys are not only in one city now, you started in San Antonio and you're branching out. So share a little bit about how you're growing and and what you're up to. Sure. So about 80% of our services historically have been focused on that model of care that I described at the beginning, that coaching mm-hmm. model and really equipping families. So the, I'll describe that very briefly and then talk a little bit more about some other things that are on the horizon. When a family comes to us, we're doing the history taking, not just of the child that is has brought them to our front door, but also of the parents to understand all the dynamics at play. And we do a number of clinical assessments on the front end to look at trauma symptom behaviors as well as parental stress levels. And that helps us create what's called a trauma responsive action plan. And that is the family's roadmap that we're going to walk alongside them for the next six months or so to empower them to make the changes in their home that are building that connection to see the progress Mm -hmm. that they want. We measure this, we see that progress, and ultimately um, we're able to be responsive to the family's need, not just on a once a week basis, but anytime Mm -hmm. there's really a need to help them regulate. So about 80% of our services are focused on that. Telehealth works extremely well because we're able to meet the parents and caregivers where they are. 
right? But as, over time, we've been able to add to our continuum of our own umbrella of care. And one of the things that we've launched within this past year is a program called ADEA. It is for the youth who are at risk of aging out of foster care without relational permanency. Those are the kids who are sleeping in hotels or CPS mm-hmm. offices or have night-to-night placement where they don't have a permanent family or home to to, to go to, right? Um, we found that as you probably, I mean, not not probably, Amber, you well know, there is a major lack of services for that population. Yeah. So interestingly, we launched it in San Antonio, but we, we just got a, another contract for that particular program in the state of Tennessee. And every state oh, wow. that we're talking with, that is the number one program that they are interested in talking with us about because it, of how extreme, sadly enough, mm-hmm. that need is. So that is a continue. That program is going to continue to grow. I'll tell you um, real quick. I'll pause for questions because I I don't want to go too long. But there mm-hmm. are two um, pro- really promising initiatives that are on our horizon as well. I'd love to hear about those too. I mean, you're you're welcome to share. Okay. Um, one is we just got a um, a new contract in the state of Florida, and it is for it's called Strong Fathers. And it is specifically about equipping fathers um, to be that that strong agent of care and healing in their home. So it's targeting um, fathers who have been involved in the um, justice system or involved in child mm-hmm. welfare system. And so I'm very excited about that initiative. And it's really um, taking that model that I described with an emphasis on fatherhood, because we know that... Um, with when there is absent when there's an absence of a father in the home, the outcomes for children long term are are not positive, right? And so there's a big emphasis on that. So I'm very excited about that initiative. And the second thing is we have recently developed a training called Displacing Shame. And it is specifically to address problematic sexualized behaviors. That mm-hmm. is a mouthful. Problematic yes. <laughs> sexualized behaviors. Um, this is uh, that topic in our sector is it's a hot one and yep. it is keeping children from having permanency. It's keeping mm-hmm. children from um, being accepted into not just residential placements, but also into homes. Yep. And, um, and there's a lot of myths around problematic sexualized behaviors, both that um, we tend to demonize, stigmatize and label kids who, who have acted yep. out some way in sec- in sexually. And this, that doesn't necessarily mean that there was sexual abuse in their history. It could just be a trauma response. It could mm-hmm. also be um, representative of past sexual abuse. But this training, the reason that we developed it was because no- nothing exists about it. As an example, like in the state of Texas, the training that exists for anybody working in this space is specifically around reporting right. sexualized behaviors. It's not, not about on treating. how to treat it. Mm-hmm. It's not on how to equip, how to redirect how to talk to kids about safe body boundaries and the th- and to actually yeah. really in a healthy way address this topic. So this training is it's virtually being offered or um, in live. We're going to eventually record it, but there are there's a prerequisite course. It's a one on one basic knowledge for everyone, and then there's a two on one course, and that is targeted to specific audiences. One is administrators, two is direct care workers three is faith-based audiences, and four, parents and caregivers. So I'm really excited about that initiative. We think it's going to really meet a, a very specific need in our in our sector. Yeah. 
And each one of those are filling very specific gaps. Uh, we see that in our, our own system here. Um, those are the kids, the kids that are in those situations that you are addressing are the, the kids that are really lingering in foster care um, or living in a hotel because a lot of times they've moved so many times um, because they're unable to find stability. Um, so we're right along with you and excited and championing those efforts and want to see them as successful as they can possibly be. Um, now that you're working in different um, different places, different kind of, I say, cultures um, from one state to another in Tennessee and their child welfare system probably looks very different than here in Texas. Is there anything specific that you've seen, um, you know, either across cities or across states that's been different, um, different ideas or just different challenges? Or are there thing, anything on the flip side of that? What do you feel like is consistent across the board? Are you able to identify anything? Yeah, you know, I wish, I mean, I don't know if it's, it would be a good thing if I could point to um, differences. I see a lot more commonalities across mm -hmm. states than differences. And one commonality that we're specifically addressing is I think the focus of a child welfare system, it, it ha it's not working, right? Mm -hmm. the, the numbers have largely not changed since I've been connected to this space for almost three decades. Maybe with a little bit of movement here and there, depends on some laws and you know different policies that change, but not a lot of movement yeah. uh, on the numbers. Still have about the same number of kids entering and exiting foster care on an annual basis. So... I would say this, our focus is on child and family well-being. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. on child welfare. And child welfare is a system of last resorts focused on physical safety of kids, which is paramount. Mm -hmm. we, we want kids to be physically yeah. safe. But that focus is woefully inadequate for what is actually needed to serve children and families well, particularly mm -hmm. those who have been hurt by abuse and neglect or whatever whatever has separated them from their first mm -hmm. family. So that focus, the shift. So the, one of the commonalities that I'm seeing is people are saying that what we're doing isn't working and they're, they're looking yeah. for how can we better serve this population. And I really believe at, in my, at my core, which is why our vision is about a child and family well-being system with a shift in focus. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll have better outcomes. And so I would say that is a common yeah. theme. Another common theme is there are not enough foster families. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that as a system of care, we're recognizing that's not a solution. Yeah. It's not a, that's not yeah. a long-term um, solution to this crisis. Um, so that there's definitely common recognition of that in that we need to be getting upstream to make sure that families are mm -hmm. equipped with what they need to meet their children's needs. So yeah. I'm seeing those themes. The other one that is really disturbing is that what I mentioned just a minute ago about that group. It's a small segment of the population, but that percentage of at-risk youth for aging out who are, you know, uh, the most challenging to place, mm -hmm. them just lingering in really not ideal circumstances, not ideal place yeah. placements, and that are really causing them even more harm. And as a system of care, it, it, every state we're finding is just really wrestling through trying to solve it for that. Yeah. And I think when you're talking about the, the shift in focus in really all of those examples, what we're talking about is moving from a responsive focus to a preventative focus. We're, mm -hmm. we're just 
this system, quote unquote, that we are currently or have been in, um, the child welfare system itself is responding to the things that happen with kids and within families. And what we're saying is we need to, to focus a lot more of our efforts on the preventative, um, trying to reach these families and provide avenues for stability before they interact or at the very beginning of their interaction with child welfare. We've said often in our, um, just within our team is what does it look like to create, you know, have a system where families are actually stronger when they interact with this quote unquote system than when they, um, when they got there, um, how do we coordinate those types of resources so that families actually can access those things and, and access relationships? Yeah, I, I love that y'all wrestle with that question. One of the things that I is really disturbing to me about our system of care is how punitive it is and how we criminalize people who need help. And, um, the, the way that we're working with families families that are at the at risk of, of intersecting with child welfare mm-hmm. or whose kids have not been removed, they, they need these types of services. Those in-depth yeah. services that are meeting the needs that are based on, you know, intergenerational traumas at play that have mm-hmm. manifested into dysfunction. Thing, I, yes, stable yeah. housing, food, like there's some core things that are needed. Um, but I would say our interventions to date have they're, mm-hmm. They've been inadequate to meet the needs of that are in the home. Yeah. Are there any stories that pop out in your mind of um, just of hope? Things that um, families that you've worked with, um, system, you know, just stories that you could share that remind you that that keep going back on the hardest days. This is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it. Yeah, um, I love this. So recently, I've been sharing this, um, and you may have even seen my reference to it. I'll, I'll tell you about one of the youth that was in our Adea program. She's actually still in it. Her name, I mean, I'm giving you her her um, her name to protect her identity. But Lacey was a 14 year old girl that um, came. She was actually sleeping in a hotel and did not have that relational permanency. Permanency. She had been foster care for two years had five placements, several hospitalizations, and been to residential treatment twice. And we started working with her on a weekly basis six months ago. And when our um, she invited Cuella from our team, Cuella is her youth partner, um, working specifically with her every week to build a relationship. Um, she was visiting her. She invited Cuella to a Thanksgiving friends and family thing at the facility that she's staying at. And so Cuella showed up day before Thanksgiving and she gave her a stuffed animal that she had won in an art contest. And she gave her this handwritten note. And she said, I know this gift is ghetto, but it's from the heart. And um, she said, you know, I, I was walking on a tightrope and you saved my life. And I think without you, I would either be dead or probably in jail. And she said, you know, no matter what happens to me or who cuts the rope that I'm walking on, I um I know I can keep going and I'm going to remember the things that I've learned from you. And it was that story of hope that I've been able to share with some of our stakeholders and our board of directors Mm -hmm. and our team to just go, this work really matters. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, there are so many Lacey's out there um, who need to know that somebody cares and is going to keep showing up for them. So that's an easy one for me because I've been just so moved by how she articulated 
um, how incredible that help was. Yeah. And the, those stories aren't often shared. Um, we, most mm-hmm. of the time we hear in the media, um, the stories that kind of get passed around of the, the difficulties with that group of kids. And um, it's always so encouraging to hear um, the success stories and to hear um, the way that people have stepped into the lives of these kids and seen them for who they are, seen beneath just the situation that they're in and the behaviors that they've maybe, maybe had. Um, so yeah, that's, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. So encouraging. Yeah. One other um, quick one, Amber, I'll, I'll share just a family story. Um, we just got a note from one of our adoptive moms and she, this mom, single mom, school teacher. So let's just marvel at that, that adopted two kids out of foster care by herself. Yeah. Um, incredible. Came to us. Um, the girls were really struggling with some anxiety and mm-hmm. about their past. And, you know, they're little, I think they were about seven and five when they came into our program. And so again, the kids can't That's articulate mom, mm-hmm. I'm feeling anxious today because, right. But how that was showing up in their home was like very distressing. And so when they came to us, they were, both girls were in the clinical range on several trauma markers and mom just felt ill-equipped. She loved them, but yep. just felt like I'm struggling. They've been in my home for two years. So think about that. If they're seven and five, they, they came into her home at five yeah. and three. That's a lot of lived history before they came into mom's mm-hmm. home. And, um, this mom, bless her. Her name's Elizabeth. And Elizabeth just, she was diligent. She was committed. She kept showing up every week to learn these new tools and techniques that were really one, creating space, creating space for that connection with real intentionality. Like as an example, they started using their car time with like no, nothing else, no music, no, no screens in the car, just on intentionally connecting. And Amber, you probably know this too, but like sometimes that's the greatest way to connect with your kids is they're not yeah. making eye contact. You can get them to like kind of open yeah. up. So they really started making a lot of progress. And she just sent us a, a Christmas picture of the girls and they're not in the clinical range any longer and are just doing tremendously well. And you know, it's those stories are fuel to keep going in the middle mm-hmm. of really hard, messy stories that we hear. Yeah. Outside of all of the tools and the resources, just hearing, hey, you're doing a great job <laughs> and you're not alone. Like you mentioned at the beginning, even that, I think for a lot of foster and adoptive friends of mine, when they're struggling, being able to say, hey, yes, let's get some help. Let's get some tools on board. But also the work you're doing is really hard and it really does matter and you're not alone in it. Um, Having that person with those tools and resources and that relationship that you can come back to and say, hey, I'm doing these things. Can you help me? Can you remind me of why I'm doing this Um, and that it matters? Sometimes that personal aspect of it can be so healing as well. Um, I'm really grateful for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else that you want to share about um, just about Chosen, about the work that you're doing, how encouraged you are by it? Um, and then we're pulling up onto our last five um, questions. So I just want to give you some space just to share anything else that you'd like to share. I, I would just say I'm incredibly proud of our team. Um, yeah. I often also say that we go into the messiest parts of people's lives. We're a faith-based mm-hmm. organization. And I like to remind our team, Jesus went in. He never shied away from a mess. He always went right into the middle of the mess. And 
hit it head on. And that takes a lot of commitment and mm-hmm. courage on our team to enter into the hardest parts of people's story. People tell us things that they've never told yeah. anyone before. This work comes with a lot of shame, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. um, and I think going back to what you said, just being seen and connecting, yeah. even our team connecting with a parent or caregiver to let them know that they're not alone. Um, I'm just really proud of our team. It's really hard work and they're doing it in a time with a mental health crisis in our country. And yeah. the problems that we see today are so much harder than when we started this work. So mm-hmm. I'm thankful. More complex, I think, as well. How do you care for your team? Just um, how how do you make sure that they stay okay um, as they carry the load of um, the crises that these families are walking through? I think three ways um, specifically come to mind. Number one, they have clinical supervision with each other every week Mm -hmm. to tackle the hardest cases and to get input from their peers. And so that's extremely Mm -hmm. uplifting for them um, where they're they're walking through some of those challenges together. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, we have somebody on our team who has, she just has a pastoral heart um, to care for people and check in on people. She's there to pray with them if they're struggling. Um, she's there as a resource if somebody needs to vent. We've also offered clinical supervision to our staff if they need their own kind of outlet from a clinical mm-hmm. perspective as well. And then the third, the third thing, we're a decentralized team across multiple regions of the country and being able to make sure that there is connection even among our team. And we're very intentional about that and creating space for that organizationally as well. So that, you know, we had a Halloween party and get to see dress up tomorrow. We have a Christmas party and, you know, it's ugly sweaters and, and we'll have some fun and play some games like that. Just keeping some lightheartedness to it helps as well. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, last five minutes. Um, I know you have to be um, in another meeting coming up, so I'm going to blow through these really quickly. Um, we typically do the final five in the last five minutes, just five really quick questions just to get to know the people behind the work a little bit. Um, and so here we go. Number one, what is your favorite trauma-informed tool or resource? Is there one in particular? My favorite is playful engagement. Okay. Uh, Can you explain play, it real quick? Just yeah, play, play, play. it's just you know, um, if my 18 year old comes in with an attitude and she's snarky and, um, I, you know, just go, Oh, wow. Like, you know, who peed in your coffee this afternoon? I mean, just something that like kind of disarms, kind of changes the mood. Um, you obviously it's age appropriate, whatever they're, whatever that is, but being able to, um, engages a different part of their brain and it's highly effective in diffusing situations that could go the wrong direction. And I think some people are better at that than others or more naturally inclined towards those things or others. I don't feel like I am. I have to really work at playful engagement um, just because there's so many things going on and you have to really work at getting into that space and not just, you know, responding. So that's a really great one. Number two, what was your very first job? Well, outside of babysitting, my very first paid job with an actual paycheck was I worked as a receptionist, no, as a hostess at Steak and L restaurant in Odessa, Texas, where I was born and raised. Oh, so many memories, I'm sure, from that. Um, Number three, what is your most frequently used emoji? Uh, Can I look? (laughs) (laughs) 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I th- it would either it would either be the praise hands like hallelujah, yeah. Um, yeah. or probably the crying emoji like the one that where you're laughing. Um, yeah, the lassie so. crying. Yeah, yeah. I actually found out just recently that I guess the one that's supposed to be a prayer hands that we use all the like that people use all the time. Someone said that it was actually a high five. Um, but people use it as prayer hands. And so now that I know that it is a little bit sad, I, people will say I'm praying and, or a high five and it's just very confusing. So, um, it's, that's funny. I had no idea. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Okay. Number four, queso or guacamole, which one's your favorite? Queso in childhood, guacamole is an adult. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And number five, are you a new year's resolution person? Um, and if so, do you have any thoughts on what your New Year's resolutions will be? And if um, if you're not, is there anything that you do to kind of ring in the new year? Um, is there a word that you focus on? Is, you know, different people have different things. How do you kind of ring in the new year? I don't call them resolutions, but I definitely set priorities, objectives. Um, mm-hmm. I think the new year, I've been recently talking about this. We, It's a shift, right? We're shifting mm-hmm. into a new year. It's a perfect time to reflect. To transition. And on this past year, and I've got some things to, you know, recalibrate and that recalibrates my priorities. So in order to do that for me, taking some downtime of personal quiet reflection, mm-hmm. prayer, um, reading, writing, where I don't have any other regular inputs like the phone or email Mm -hmm. um, is super helpful for me to get really clear on next year's priorities. So I'm taking a couple of days the first week of the new year to do that. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us, Jenny. I respect you so greatly. Um, I'm always just so impressed um, by the work that you're doing and the you're just you're pioneering in this space. Um, and I learn a lot from you. Um, we don't get to interact all that much, um, but I do really admire you from afar. Um, so thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Um, thank you for continuing on um, and building such a wonderful team um, and just for your heart for families. Um, we really do appreciate it and our our system is better for it. So oh, really well, great to likewise. Speak with you today. Okay. Likewise. You're a fellow champion and I appreciate you and the incredible work that Riverside Project is doing. Thanks for having me on. Of course. To those listening, we hope these conversations have inspired you to find your place along the river. And we welcome you to join us in bringing hope and renewal to the city of Houston. If you'd like more information on how to get involved, please visit riversideproject.org and submit a contact form. We'll see you next time.